11. So I got a lot of thoughts going through my head. You know what, this, this year, this past year has been unique in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, uh, at least in, in my lifetime, in my generation, uh, um, I, I grew up, uh, and probably you guys remember this, the Cold War was going on, right? And we were like, Russia's going to nuke us. And, you know, we used to do these drills in class where you would have to hide under your desk as if there was a nuclear tech a nuclear attack, and I keep thinking to myself as a kid, even looking back on it now even more, and I'm like, how dumb was that? You know, it's like, like my desk is going to protect me from a nuclear attack. <laughs> you know, uh, we live in a different world now where in schools our kids have to do lock in place when there's a threat of a school shooting and all these other things, and, and there's still um, crazy things going on in this world, but this year, this past year with with, with uh, COVID and uh, a lot of the political um, unrest that we see going on. And um, it's, it's, it's brought a lot of doubt. It's brought a lot of fears, un, uncharted fears into our lives that we've all um, experienced in one way or another. <clears throat> one of the things that I keep reminding myself of, and I want to encourage you guys with this morning as well, is that fear is a tool of the enemy. It's not of God. The Bible tells us really clearly that God's a God of love and he's given us a spirit of love, not a spirit of fear. But that doesn't mean that fear is not real and that we don't face things that can cause us to fear. The, the, the issue is, is the, 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 the way that we respond to that as Christians is, is we don't allow the fears that we encounter to then control us, right? That's what, we're saying, what God's telling us. We allow the, the spirit of love to control us, not the spirit of fear. And, and what, one of the things that I've seen going on in our world is that fear will rob you of the life that God's given you to live. And we see a lot of people who are fearful that are reacting in certain ways, and they're, they're truly missing out in, on the life that God's given them to live, but even more so the, the life that Christ has come to purchase for us as Christians. You know, we talk about life and life more abundant. We look for the life to come, and we have hope and an assurance of the life to come. But you know what? God saved me. I was talking to Charlie this morning, and we were talking a little bit about our past, and we know what God saved us from, and there was no life for us in that old life. It was death, and this life that I now have in Christ is life. It's a new life, and, and where I have life abundant life and blessing, but fear can, if we're not careful, fear can rob us of the life that Jesus purchased for us. It can control us, and it can move us, and, and um, it can cause us to run, it can cause us to hide, and, and, and that's not what God has for any one of us. And so this morning I bring that up because this psalm addresses some of those things, and um, I want to read a quote, or it's, it's, I'm not going to say who it is, it's a friend that I have, he, he put this, he posed these questions. Now this is specifically in, in regards to some, some things that are going on politically, but I think that his questioning is a question that all of us are facing as believers where we go, in light of what's going on in the world today, what is my response? How do I, what do I do to move forward in the right way? And so tell me, you know, I think we can all identify with this. He says this. He says, it's been so hard for me personally to decipher the role that Christians should have in this political climate. And I, can, I would even beg to, to, with him to go just in this climate that we're living in now, right? Not just politically speaking, but it's so hard for me to personally decipher the role that Christians should have in this 
political climate or in this climate that we now find ourselves living in. He says, I've never experienced such diverseness and emotions and nerves and tensions at such a boiling point. You guys can relate to that? Yeah? He says, as a follower of Christ, I grieve over the rapid decline of our country. But what should our response be? Isn't that a question we find ourselves all asking in the midst of the uncertainty that we find ourselves in? Externally speaking, I mean, our, we don't have any uncertainty in our hope in Christ. There should be no uncertainty in our insurance of what God has for us and the blessings that God you know, has promised to us and his protection, his provision. But nevertheless, we are in this world. And he goes, so what should our response be? He goes, fighting to stop it? More political involvement, civil disobedience, rallies and demonstrations, a louder voice in our personal sphere of influence and on social media and or on social media. And then he, he goes on, the, the, his, his, his um, letter, if you will, is much longer than that. And, um, but, but, and he goes on to articulate that basically he's just looking for some honest, godly perspective on, on where to land. And, and, and I don't have all the answers for these things. I think that in each situation that we face in life now and as we go forward, it requires us to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, to be in Christian fellowship so that we can get good counsel and advice from one another. Because the, I know this, that when we simply react to a situation, when we simply react to an emotion, nine times out of ten, it's going to be the wrong thing. And, and, and I, I always try to remember that because I want to respond rather than react. Because when I respond, it means that I've taken the time to think about it, the time to pray about it, the time to get counsel and move forward, just not in an emotional response. And I know for sure, for certain, that that's what God calls us to do in every aspect of our life, whether it's in our marriage relationship or parenting with our kids or how to spend our finances, how we respond in the workplace, you know, or how we interact with the world outside in regards to what's going on, it, it can't be just an emotional response. But yet when we come back to this thing of fear, when fear drives us, it's always an emotional response when we give way to fear. And, and I bring that up again because I think there's some key answers for us in Psalm 11 about how to respond to fear and not to just be moved by our emotions. And I think it's really applicable to things that we're, we're facing now today. So I want to read this psalm, Psalm 11, to you. It's, it's a short psalm, so it's probably only going to take us 10 minutes to go through. <laughs> Maybe not. But then we'll pray. So verse 1, listen, it says, in the Lord I put my trust. So there's there's really just this statement that sets the stage for the overall context of where we're going. And I think this is, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this in, in relationship to what we've already been talking about, because this is the foundation. What are you trusting in? Who are we trusting in? And, and this is David, and he says, in the Lord I put my trust. And, and so then he goes on to really um, ratify this, this statement that he, he makes. And so He's, he's speaking to those who have spoken to him as he goes on. He says, how can you say to my soul, flee as a, mount, as a bird to your mountain? 
And so then he says this to those who have said that to him, and then in verse 2 is kind of their, their explanation, if you will, for why they've said this to David. They say, it's almost like, come on, David, look. For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow in their string, on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So that, that, that statement was their reason for why you should flee. And then in verse 4, David responds. He says, the Lord in his, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who love, loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. And Father, I pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would calm what's going on in my own heart and in my mind. Lord, you give me um, a good uh, focus upon you this morning, Lord, on these things that you've shown me and that you have for us this morning, Lord, that it would be your words coming forth, and Lord, that they would give us real practical answers, Father, for how to respond to fear in those times when we're afraid. Lord, we pray for the other churches in our community. We know, Lord, that there are even some who still have their doors shuttered. I don't know why, Lord, they're still not open. Um, I, I, I can't imagine, God, that that's your will. I know, Lord, of many people who, who were going to church many months ago who are no longer going to church, Lord, because of fear because of the world that we now live in. And, and Lord, I, I can't imagine that either being your will or your desire. And Lord, so I pray, God, that you would strengthen your church. And God, and as we look forward to the uncertainties that we face in our own nation and in this world, as we wait, um, hopefully and expectantly, for your return, Lord, um, I pray you would strengthen us, God, that you would give us courage, Lord, that you give us unity in you with one another, and Lord, that we would stand strong, stay the course, and Lord, that we'd be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and God, that we would be gracious like you are gracious, gracious to one another, and, and gracious to those in this world that we interact with, Lord, who don't have the same answers that we have, that have questions without answers, Lord, that have fear without hope. Lord, we're not those people, and we're grateful for that. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, after reading this psalm, I think you can see, first of all, that there's really no indicators that, let, that allows us or, or lets us to be able to, like, um, date stamp this psalm to any one of 
a particular instance in David's life. You can read through the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, First um, and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, and which are books of history in the Old Testament. And, and you can read about the life of David and the events that he's gone through. And lots of times David will, even in the subtitle, say, hey, this is what this psalm is in reference to. And other times you can make some deductions and, 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 and so make some conclusions based upon those deductions about you know, what David was writing about or what he was facing. But that's not the case in any way in this psalm. And when you study David's life, it's clear that he faced many dangers. He faced many situations where there were wicked people doing evil things. And um, so far up to this point, you know, we're in Psalm 11, and we've read through and studied through 10, ten different psalms, and we previously read um, that David had written about dangers he faced while he was in Saul's court. And um, we, he wrote about times when he was being chased uh, by Saul through the desert of Engedi. And he even wrote about a time really specifically uh, of when his son's son Absalom had led a rebellion against him, right? And in each of these instances, one of the things that's the same in each one of those psalms and each one of those instances that we were told about, we read that David, in those instances, in those times, wisely fled for his life as he ran away from the immediate danger, but never running away from God, right? Always fleeing, always fleeing. However, in this psalm, there's something different, and I hope you keyed in on that. I hope you realize that we read about a different situation being described in where David would not flee at this time, in this instance, whatever it was, he would not flee from that present danger he was facing. And he remained firmly planted in the place where God had put him, and in doing so, he trusted in God to protect him. Even in the midst of the council, these counselors who said, flee, David said, I'm not, not going to. And so whatever the crisis or danger may have been that David was facing at this time, this psalm, I think what it teaches us, because get this, guys, sometimes it's right to flee, and sometimes it's right to stand, okay? But what this psalm teaches us is that we must choose ultimately whatever the situation is, Whatever God tells us, we have to ultimately choose between fear and walking in accordance to what we can see and understand with our own physical limitations, or choose to trust God and walk by faith as we ultimately make a decision to follow human counsel or to obey the wisdom that comes from God when we ask for it in faith. And we can't allow the circumstances to dictate our reaction. There must be a response. And that response comes from the wisdom of God. Remember, in 1 James chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, it really tells us this. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But there's like a condition here that James talks about. An instruction, an admonition. He says, but let him ask in faith, right? 
Let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And I, and I bring all these things to, our, to light in, in, re, in, in, in reference to this verse as we prepare to study through the psalm because this psalm, listen, is all about the answers of faith to the advice of fear. This psalm is about the answers of faith to the advice of fear. Who's ever been advised by fear? And, and, and our response needs to be what faith moves us in. So in this first verse, let's go through this psalm, it appears that when this crisis, this unknown crisis arose, it appears that David's counselors, who were recognizing a clear and present danger, and were fearful for David, their king's safety, is that they advised him to leave Jerusalem and head for the safety of the mountains. And David said in verse 1, right, look there, he said, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a mountain, or flee as a bird to your mountain? And apparently those who have told David to, to flee didn't have faith that the Lord would take care of them. And that's the first thing that David recognizes that. And he contrasts that by that statement. He says, you guys aren't, but I'm going to. He could see and recognize that their counsel was first rooted in fear. David, run. Now, I want to point out that David in Psalm 55, verses 6 through 8, different, different time of trouble, he had prayed. He had prayed to have the wings of a dove in order to be able to escape from the storm that he was facing, storms I think that all of us at one time or another have also faced because he desired to be from, free from the trouble that he was in. And, and man, there's lots of times that I, 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 pre, I pray to also flee just because I don't want to face the trouble. I, I'm not even really afraid. I just don't want to go through it. I just want to be delivered, right? But the truth of the matter is, is that even though we would like to escape from the storms of life that we face, we don't need wings like doves to do so like David writes about. Rather, what we need to do, guys, always and first and foremost, we need to wait on the Lord, the Bible tells us. We first need to wait on the Lord, and the Bible says that we need to do that in order to renew our strength, okay? Like it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, and in doing so, that we then would have wings like the eagle so that we can rise above the storms by faith, with faith. So it's not just about fleeing the storm, it's about rising above it. And one of the things that we must keep in mind in this instance, and I always, you know you guys know this, but keep it in the forefront of your mind and you remember that David was the king. And as the king, he was the leader. And so if he was to needlessly flee, I mean needlessly without God's counsel, without God's wisdom, without God's instruction, if he was to needlessly flee from the crisis, he would have not been faithful to God. And as the king, that was the most important. To be faithful to God and to the people who God had called him to lead. And the point is, godly leaders put their faith in God to protect them. And godly, put, godly leaders put their faith in God to direct their paths, even in times of great trial or trouble or difficulty. They don't run away because of fear. 
And a great example of this is given to us by a man by the name of Nehemiah. And we know that Nehemiah had called God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, we're told that when the walls of Jerusalem had been built, just before the gates of the walls were hung, okay, the walls had been built, the gates were there, the the walls were there, but the the, the doors had not been hung in the the gates there, that there was this last-ditch attempt at that time by Nehemiah's enemies who had been coming against him through the whole time of the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem, that the enemies were coming against him at this last, perhaps, opportunity to do so to kill Nehemiah in order to, to prevent or to stop the work that, was God, that God was doing. In fact, what we're told in Nehemiah chapter 6 is that there was a traitor in Nehemiah's midst, a secret informer who had been paid by Nehemiah's enemies, and he gave Nehemiah this false information about his enemies trying to come and kill him so that Nehemiah would flee to the temple, into the temple, and that he would hide like a coward and not finish the work that God had given him to do, the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But what we read in that account is that Nehemiah would have nothing to do with it. He would not flee, even in the midst of this apparent danger and, and, and he would have nothing to do with this attempts that were being brought forth that would cause him to react in fear. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, as a matter of fact, I love this, in, in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, in verses 10 through 13, it says this, Nehemiah's words. It says, Afterward I came to the house of Shimei, the son of Deliah, the son of Metabel, who was a secret informer, And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. And indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. And I said, Nehemiah, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? He says, I will not go in. And then it says, Nehemiah said, then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. He was given wisdom. He didn't react. He did a godly thing. He said, but that this man had pronounced this prophecy against me because of Tobiah and Sanballat, they had hired him. And for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. Now the fact of the matter, guys, is the fact of the matter is that fear is a strong motivator, right? Fear is a strong motivator. And it's a tool that the enemy will use in an attempt to control us. And, and in, that, in that attempt to control us, that fear will even make the situation of of doing what it's calling us to do to look like it's the right thing. They're going to kill you. Take refuge. That seems like a good thing on the surface. But what was the motivator? Was it the counsel of God? Was it the counsel of a godly man? It was simply the, 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 um, the advice of fear. And there was a godly answer to that. 
and it came through faith as as Nehemiah continued to put his faith in God. You know, in these times when we're afraid, in these times when we want to escape, we must be aware of listening to unwise counsel. And as we put our faith in God, in God like David does here and like Nehemiah did, you guys, we can rest assured that as we put our faith in God, that God will protect us and that God will direct our paths. And in that, we have no reason to fear. And in verse 2, we read the response from those who had counseled David to flee after he told him that he was going to put his trust in the Lord and stay put where he was at. And, and they say in verse 2, they say, for look, Look, David, the wicked, they're already there. They have their weapons ready. Their bow is bent. They make ready their arrow on their string that they may shoot secretly at the heart of the upright or or at the upright in heart. And then even again, they try to reason with him and say, David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And, And their response shows us exactly what the problem was with David's advisors, okay? Their response to David saying, I'm going to put my trust in the Lord, it reveals to us the problem with David's advisors as they were looking at the enemy, their gaze, their focus, their attention was on the enemy who was ready to attack, who already had the arrow on the string and their bows bent. Understand, these men that we read about, they were telling David to flee. They were walking by what they could see right? They were walking by what they could see and evaluating the situation only from their human perspective, which was limited. Now, what they saw and what they reported to David, that was the facts, correct? It was the facts of the situation. And for sure, it's always good to know the facts. We don't want to just pretend that there's not a danger when there is a danger, Right? I think we saw that early on in our world, even within the Christian world, where I saw a lot of churches that didn't take, I think at the time, a reasonable precaution when we did not know all the facts in regards to what this virus, what this new danger was that we were facing. And they were scoffing in that face of danger. That's not wisdom either. That is an ungodly reaction when you scoff in the face of danger. It's always good to know the facts. And God never wants us to just bury our head in the sand and simply ignore our problems or the reality of the situation that we're facing. And with this in mind, we should understand that that God's Word never promotes ignorance. Do you know that? God's Word never promotes ignorance, even in regards to our knowledge and understanding of Him. Especially willful ignorance. But when it comes to the facts of any given trial or any given trouble that we might face, we must look at the facts in the presence, or we must look at the facts in light of the presence and the promises of God. Do you get that? You take the facts, you take what you know, and you bring that before the, before the presence and the promises of God. And this was the difference between David and his counselor. And by their own admission, they, at the end of verse 2, admit to doing this when they referred to David as the upright before God. And and this was evident because David was just not looking to what his counselors were able to see. He was also looking up to God to guide him. In the Lord I will put my trust. 
But because they were not looking up at God, they came to the only conclusion that they could, saying in verse 3 that if David did not flee, if we are not to flee, then they said the very foundations would be destroyed. There was no trust. They thought that the very thing that God had built up would then be destroyed. And then it's kind of like, then what are we going to do then, David? You see, they knew, they knew this. They knew that if David had been appointed by God as king, that, that um, they knew that David had been appointed by, by God by, as king by God. So anything that would attack David personally would be then shaking perhaps the very foundation of the nation. If the king was killed, then what would happen to the nation, right? And the fact of the matter is that, is that all of society is built on truth. Think about our society. A functional, healthy society anyway is, is to be built on truth. And when, but when truth is questioned... When truth is questioned, when, when truth is denied, the very foundation of society is then shaken. I think that's what we see going on. And as you well know, our nation and our society 250-some years ago was founded upon truth. It was founded upon truth. The truth found in God's Word. The eternal truths. But over the years, these truths that our nation and that our society have been founded on, they've been questioned, have they not? Down through the years, and even denied. And consequently, as we look around now, we see the very foundation of our country that it's shaking, that it's rapidly coming apart all around us. However, this does not mean, guys, listen, this does not mean that we, the righteous, should resign as if there's no hope. Should we just flee to the mountains? In fact, if all we ever do is flee, then we should never expect the foundations, that the foundations which we love will be destroyed. If all we ever do is flee, we should expect that the foundations that we love will be destroyed. Therefore, we must be committed to the foundation. We must be committed to the foundation. We must be committed to building back up those things that have been torn down. And how do we do so? By speaking the truth, by proclaiming the truth, by living in accordance to the truth, standing upon the truth of God's word. And this is the reason why, and the reason why I say this is because is from God's point of view, from God's point of view, right? He allows for things to be shaken up so that we, his people, might stand up. I believe that God allows for things to be shaken up so that his people will stand up and, and at times, in, in a right way, fight for what is good, fight for what is true, and just not hide or run away in fear. And the only people who truly want to run away in fear, now think about this, the only people who ever truly run away in fear, no matter what the circumstances or the situation is, is, is those who have no hope. People who run away in fear are those who have no hope. Those who do not have 
a God to go to or to put their trust in, and that is not so for us. We are not these kinds of people, even though there are those times when we, like David's counselors, can be blinded by the troubles that we are facing and in the moment maybe fail to see God. But in those times, we must recall, I think, passages of Scripture that are in God's Word, like what we read in Isaiah chapter 51. It says in Isaiah 51, verses 4 through 8, listen, God speaking, okay? He says, Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for my law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. In other words, get your eyes off of your problems. Lift your eyes up to me. And look on the earth beneath. In other words, change your perspective. Again, it's not this willful call to ignorance or a call to willful ignorance where we know that there's stuff going on, but we're just not gonna, we're just gonna pretend it's not there. God says to his people, change your perspective. Look up to the heavens and then look down upon the earth. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke, the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in a like manner. But my salvation, God says, will be forever. And my righteousness will be will not be abolished. Man, and sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? When you look around and see so much unrighteousness, you go, Where's the righteousness of God? Is it failed? But God says, God says, my righteousness will not be abolished. And he says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them up like wool. But God says, my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. If that's true, then what do we have to fear? If that's true, then why would we not stand in the midst of fear for what is true, for what is right? Listen, in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, it says this. I love this. It says, remember this and show yourselves to be men. Recall to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. You know what that means? Is that God knows about everything before it even happens. Declaring the end from the beginning. It's not a surprise what's going on in the world today, in your life today to God. It's not a surprise. You know, I think we walk around, and, and clearly there are bad things going on. But sometimes we look at it and we make this judgment and go, oh, that's a bad thing. We need to stop doing that as believers because there's a mindset, an ungodly mindset that comes like that. Now listen, can it be a sad thing? Yeah. Are there some th sad things going on in our world today? Yeah. But if God's still in control and he's allowed it, the one who, who dictates the end from the very beginning, who are we then to say that it's a bad thing? 
And I catch myself doing that all the time, and it's an emotional response and an ungodly response to things I see going on around me. And I have purpose in my heart. If you hear me saying these things, call me out on it, but I'm no longer going to look at our world through in, in, in what's going on politically, what's going on in, in regards with the virus or, or, or anything in my life and go, that's a bad thing. Now, I'll call evil evil and, and, and good good. I'm not going to go and, and do that part. That's not what I'm saying. But the different kind of bad that I'm talking about, where we make some kind of judgment and then what's going on is not a good thing of God or that God's not going to work good through it like he promises to do. It can be a sad thing. When I see the foundations of what we have in our country being, being, being destroyed, I go, it's a sad thing. But is God still on the throne? Is our trust in him? Is he in heaven? Has he dictated the end of it from the very beginning? Does God do bad things? No, he's a good God who does good things. Even in the midst of the evil that's out there, God says, that, can pre- that cannot prevent me from doing good things in and through your lives. He says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my word shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And why does God say that? Because the first thing he starts with, he says, remember this, remember these things and show yourselves to be men. Stand, stay the course. And in verse 4, it says this, the Lord is in his holy hill. The Lord is in his holy, excuse me, his holy temple. And the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, and his eyes, his eyelids, which is kind of a weird thing, but we'll explain that. His eyelids test the sons, the sons of men. My 10 minutes is up. (laughs) And more. So in this next verse, where it's where David begins to answer fear with faith. He begins to answer fear with statements of faith. And, 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 and he, in doing so, he contrasted the problems he was facing here on this earth first by, remember, by remembering this simple thing, the position of God. Where's God? He's in heaven. Where at? In his holy temple. What is he doing? He's on his throne. That should be enough. That implies many things. And, and, and when we look at that, we know that the men who had lost their hope, that is at the beginning of this psalm, and responded to the fear by telling David to flee and asking him, you know, what can the righteous do? Have, have you asked that question? God, look at the world around us. What, what, is it, what, what can the righteous do? Even when we do the right thing, wrong things prevail, right? What can the righteous do? That's a statement of unbelief. That's a statement rooted in lack of faith. That's a statement given with no hope in who God is or where he's at or what he's still doing. They were asking him, what can the righteous do? And and, and, and they were answered by David in this verse as he tells us that the righteous can put their trust in God whose throne is in the heavens. And this simply means that God is ruling over the earth and, and, and from, 
this place, David, at the end of verse 4, then look there, he points out that God sees. It's not that God's just in heaven afar off. He sees. And he completely, what we're being told here with the description of how he, God sees here, he, we're being told that he completely investigates the activities of the sons of men. And we know that God does it in a level that reaches below the surface into the heart and into the minds of the people who are doing it. He investigates the activities of the sons of men. This literally means that God who is omniscient, right? All-knowing is observing everything that is going on in our lives, and he's not doing it in this lazadaisical or, or, or casual or even random way. On the contrary, in light of the mention of God's eyelids here, we should see that God is examining the things on this earth very closely, very intently. And, and what is, Because that is in the same way that we would examine something closely today, right? Especially if you are older and you have a hard time seeing not that God has a hard time seeing, but the, it's relatable to us because we squint. We're like, huh? You know, you're flexing your eyelids. You're like, is that really what I'm seeing there? Intently, closely, contracting our eyelids so that we might get a better view of things. The point is, is when we look around, we only see the problems we face. Did you hear what I said? When we look around, we only see the problems that we face. But when we look up to God in faith, we see, and not only we see, we find all the answers to the problems that we have. I want to point out that the word test that is used at the end of verse 4, he tests the sons of men. And then again, at the beginning of verse 5, is this Hebrew word called bachan. And in ancient times, this Hebrew word was, it was used in the processing of precious metals, specifically by a smelter, that word vachan. And, and, and um, it was used to determine the purity. It was the, it was the testing or the process that was used to determine the purity of the metal that was being refined. Okay? It's a verb. And I point this out because it, it's a reminder for us of how God's eyes are penetrating deep into the hearts, and deep into our minds, and, and how God is testing us in order to refine us, right? There's this testing. There's this refining that's going on. And man, in this shaking that we've been going through, I've felt a refining. But you know how, you don't, you don't, you're not refined when you're fleeing, when you're running, when you're hiding in those times when God has said, stand, because not only are you fleeing from the maybe present danger, but you're fleeing from the, the work of God's hand in your life. And in these final verses, well, let me just say this. So, so as what we know, and I want to bring this out, is that as God is testing us, he's doing so to bring out the best in us, Right? God's testing us in order to bring out the best that's in us. Things that he's probably even done the work on that we're not even realizing the fruit of that work yet until we're in the midst of the trial and you're like, you, you do the right thing. You respond the right way. And you're like, wow, thank you, God. I didn't know I could do that. You know, it's a work of God. Yet when we put our trust in God and there's these testings that are going on, we should also know that Satan is at the same time tempting 
God's testings are opportunities for Satan's tempting. And he tempts us in order to bring out the worst in us. God's testing to bring out the best, Satan's tempting to bring out the worst. Yet, when we put our trust in God through the difficulties of life and through the the times of trials that we face, um, what we know is that when we put our trust in God, that those difficult times, those trials will then work for us and not against us and work in us to refine us and to purify us, to purify our lives. Now, in these final verses, David uses three images in verses... um, well, starting, I think, really in 6 and on, on, on through. But um, there's, these, there's this imagery that, that, we, that we have here. Three images to describe the judgment that God has prepared for the wicked. And there's another, this is also another reminder for us of why to stand. God knows their end, and we should know it too. The judgment that God has prepared for the wicked. First, David, he says he saw fire and brimstone descending upon them. And really, guys, this is the exact same description for the judgment that God used, the exact same language, the exact same wordage in the original Hebrew. It's the exact same judgment that was used on Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. If you don't know that story, go and read it. And then David spoke of this burning wind or this scorching wind, the kind that blew through the, the deserts of the Middle East. And, and this third imagery is then this image of drinking of the cup, right? Drinking from a cup. And the description of the cup in this manner is, is um, often used in Scripture as a, as, a, as a part of or as a picture of God's judgment. And all of these things... All these images are depicted in this way in order to give us this reminder of what God has planned for the wicked person who loves violence, okay? But in verse 7, there's a, there's a good news. And, and if you're not an evil person and you remember this, if you're not the wicked person and you're remembering the judgments that's going to come forth, that's good news as well. But the, the better news is what what God has for us. And in verse 7 is the good news as we're told of what God has planned for his own people. For those who turn in times when fear is present and put their trust in him, saying this, his countenance, God's countenance, beholds the upright. In other words, the upright, literally what this means is that the upright will see the face of God. The upright will behold God's face. And this is a pretty cool thing, guys, because when we see God's face, what this means is that we've been given access to him. Very simply. There's more to it than that, but it's like God, when, when we behold his countenance, we're like, we're able to come into his presence to behold his face. It's an invitation, it's an acceptance. Literally, we're welcomed or admitted into our king's presence to the place where we then are able to find our rest and are able to enjoy all of God's blessings. And that is available to us now, this side of eternity. If the worship team wants to come up, I want to end with 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says this, starts with a question. 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. And Father, that is our hope. And um, you've given us a clear instruction, Lord, on how to live as we wait for the fulfillment of that hope of one day standing in your presence to see you as you are. And Lord, that doesn't mean that you are hiding yourself from us today. Your son Jesus told his disciples that, that if we knew him, we know you. And that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that when we enter into this relationship with you, through him, by our faith, God, that we, that we, are, are, that we have seen you. We do know you because we know Jesus. We know that you are good. We know that you are loving and kind and forgiving and gracious and merciful, but we also know that you're a, a just God and there's a reckoning coming. And Lord, so we as the righteous who are here upon this earth, righteous because of you, righteous through you, we know righteousness because of your word. Lord, may we not be like, may we not grieve like the rest of the world grieves nowadays when we see things passing away, when we see things changing. Lord, when we um, are experiencing a loss, may we not grieve like those who have no hope. But we remember our hope in you. And God, that we would, we would stand when you call us to stand. That we would stay the course. That we would not flee. Lord, that we would remain, to pro- remain in this place where we are filled with courage to proclaim the truth, to stand in the truth, even when the very foundations of what... Um, of what our society and our nation have been founded upon, the truth that that is in you and of you, Lord, when we see these things crumbling. Lord, may you use us to shore up the truth, to shore up the foundation. God, may we have unity in you as we do it. There would be no divisions among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.